0: Climate justice requires us to radically restore our relationship with the natural world around us and transform our political and economic systems to support this deep cultural change. No one is better equipped to lead this vision than the indigenous people who have maintained reciprocal relationships with their homelands for millennia climate justice will require a significant structural shift from a profit-based global extractive economy to needs-based, localized, regenerative economies. Extractive systems endlessly require another valley, another river, another island, another continent until there is nowhere left to occupy, conquer, pollute, and destroy. Today's extractive systems were created and are upheld by the colonial myths of scarcity, individualism, and the sanctity of free markets. Tomorrow's regenerative systems must be rooted in the indigenous realities of abundance, community codependency, and deep reciprocal relationships between the planet and its people. These words are from Kanila Ng, the National Climate Justice Campaign Director for People's Action, from the essay The Only Moral Path from the NDN Collective's book Required Reading, Climate Justice Adaptation and Investing in Indigenous Power. You're listening to Climate Futures, the podcast that interviews Harvard professors, activists, and experts on possible solutions and possible worlds responding to climate change. This season, we're talking about some issues that Kim Stanley Robinson doesn't quite get to in Ministry for the Future, starting off this episode with indigeneity. Today, I have the privilege of talking to Andrew Curley, an assistant professor at the University of Arizona in Human Geography, who researches the everyday incorporation of indigenous nations into colonial economies based on ethnographic research. His publications look at how indigenous communities understand coal, energy, land, water, infrastructure, and development in this era of energy transition and climate change. And grad student Marley Lister, who works on development and indigenous economies. Thank you guys so much for being here today. Would you mind telling me a little bit about yourself to start off?
1: Uh, Yacht A, um, Andrew Curley uh, is my name. I'm an assistant professor in the School of Geography, Development and Environment at the University of Arizona. I'm a member of the Navajo Nation and my research centers on questions of development, resource politics. Primarily, I've looked at coal and the, the legacies of coal mining on the Navajo Nation and then trying to get a better sense of what are some of these social dynamics around energy, energy production that are existent for tribes and indigenous nations.
2: Hi, my name is Marley. I'm also Navajo. And um, yeah, a lot of my research is focused on the Navajo Nation, uh, particularly questions about land and land use. Uh, And my research is focusing on narratives around development within um, the Navajo Nation, looking at community development.
0: And I'm looking forward to hearing more about that work. Um, But I'll start with just a really easy question for you guys. What exactly is human geography? (laughs)
1: <laughs> that is a, a very complicated question. In fact, I think a good way to think about it is um, how we think about people, you know, people on the planet, society, questions of society, you know, how people are, are working on the land, thinking about the land, living on the land, and um, and, um, and really combining the human element with how we think about space.
2: For sure. I, I agree with what Andrew said. Um, human geography has definitely been a focus on the relations and spatialization of human practices and activities. For me, human geography really um, shows that things aren't necessarily as discrete as we think they are, and that uh, a lot of the time, it, it's definitely in our mind, like mental geographies or uh, mental imaginaries that we draw upon to um, think about our our practices, and 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 that's something that indigenous geographers are really doing, not just necessarily placing ourselves as a, a resistance all the time, but actually thinking about what people are actually doing um, and actually grounding it and in, in, in lived practices and experiences.
0: And what exactly does colonialism, what do Indigenous issues have to do with the environment? Why is the work you guys do relevant to climate issues?
1: Um, colonialism is world changing. These are world changing events. And colonialism is not just about control of territory. The territory isn't left as it is, especially under settler colonialism. There's a lot of ideas of where how colonialism has worked over the past um, four or five hundred years. But when we're talking about people coming in and trying to replace the existing population, they also try to manage and engineer the environments. So in Arizona, you can't let the Colorado River flow into um, the Pacific Ocean. You can't let it flow out of the region without being interrupted, without being um, diverted into large agricultural fields, um, reservoirs for um, the Central Arizona Project. Um, and so a lot of the history of colonialism and the contemporary practices, is not just history, a lot of the history and existing practices are about fundamentally changing the environment. And and um, that's why we have the Hoover Dam, right? The Hoover Dam is a colonial intrusion on the Colorado River. One of the notorious examples is the Pick-Sloan Act, you know, the dams along the Missouri River that flooded hundreds of acres of um, indigenous land. Colonialism and environmental transformation go hand in glove. They're like the same thing. They're, they work together in um, in the settler colonial states of the United States, of, um, of Canada. Look at the state seal of Indiana. It's a guy chopping a tree down with a buffalo running away in the background. So, you know, colonialism and environmental transformation work uh, almost simultaneously and uh, work in, as as um, contributing projects. You know, one is leading into the other.
2: Yeah, I, I have very similar opinions on that. I mean, colonialism is an environment environment-making a project that is either through genocide or marginalization of indigenous people. And, you know, my, my research really focused on the regimes, the land regimes within the Navajo nation. And what happens during this project is that certain types of development are prioritized, such as like mining. And usually this is at the detriment of some people living there, as well as the detriment of traditional practices and social relations. And it really reshapes people's relationship to the land and you know and it it isn't necessarily a, a some loss like in some cases some people benefit from it like uh coal workers you know they their uh material conditions are improved based on the jobs that they get uh but part of that is really in my like the way i see colonialism is like restructuring relationships and and thinking about reshaping the indigenous people's Um, position within their own sense of place, but also in the kind of global scale of things as people leave the reservation in search of jobs or um, other means of of supporting themselves. But the whole point of the state is kind of to, um, it it acts to shape the environment and the landscape around it uh, due to what types of development it chooses to prioritize as well as trying to legitimize or promote these certain industries that are usually capitalist and um extractive in nature. And as a result, you know, certain practices and relationships to the land are they're not oblib- they're not destroyed or completely, um, you know changed. I'm sorry, not changed, but they're yeah, they're not completely destroyed, but they're altered in a way. And so a lot of my research looks at how Navajo people, on the ground deal with this colonial project in in their own everyday experience. And what comes to to mind is just that the way that they identify with the land is very similar to their own historical memory and traditional knowledge, but also informed by um, the other aspect of of colonialism, which is like the introduction of wage work and um, religion and different culture And and globalization uh, and and thinking about how those all interact to shape the current relationship that in 20 years, even in five years might not be the same. Uh, And, and, you know, it's a very complicated uh, way of looking at how colonialism is part of not just an environment making project, but also what's crucial to this is that it reorganizes our relationship to the land Uh, and in the reorganization of these social relationships, uh, it also prioritizes certain types of development, which, you know.
0: And more broadly, how do you see the dynamics of colonialism playing out in environmental issues today?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a really big question. Again. Oh, go ahead, sorry, what? I was, I was gonna say a joke, I was gonna be like, my gas is, is more expensive. <laughs> <laughs> it's inflation. <laughs> colonialism is inflation. No. Um, yeah, the, the structure is there, but the structure isn't always the same. And it, 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 events and history change uh, those social relations that uh, Marley referred to. You know, those, those things are always in flux. And, um, and and they're not theological. They're not going in one direction. They can go, they can go in, they can go backward with uh how does colonialism play out today well um you know how does a structure continue to reproduce itself it's, it's largely embedded in the law you know it's in in the Marshall trilogy of the 1830s um almost uh, 200 years now have we been under this um doctrine of discovery and the um Ward guardianship uh, assumption between the federal government and uh, indigenous nations, where our reservation lands are considered by the federal government to be federal title, and then um, we are we are just um, uh, wards of on that we are tenants, but we don't have the the title to those lands. Um, not that we would. Uh, not that we would be petitioning for a private property regime, that's not what I'm suggesting, it's just to say that the law itself is containing uh, the limited possibilities of what tribes can do in order to keep them within the bounds of federal law, within state law. Tribes can't do things that other international actors can do, right? We can't appeal for loans from, from large international funders or make um, trade agreements with other nations like if the Navajo Nation wanted to create a free trade agreement with with uh, Mexico, I'm sure that uh, the rest of the state of Arizona would have some sort of um, a, a disagreement with that and prevent us from doing that. You know, even though the United States is free to do that uh, um, on their own, and so you know, consequently, we are um, we are kind of we're we're trapped within the political structures of the United States um, within the the U S law. And so those things uh, play out in those ways. And another example, one that I'm really looking at is is the Colorado River. Uh, and the Colorado River was divided 100 years ago now um, in 1922 among the seven Colorado Basin states. And um, those states uh, apportioned all of the water and then some between themselves. And they estimated... Uh, incorrectly, that fifteen million acre feet of water flows through the Colorado a year, and um, and then they said we'll just divide that in half. Lower basin gets seven point five million. Upper basins get seven, and that there are seven point five million, and then they. Distribute that amongst themselves. And Indian water rights are not uh, recognized in that system. And to this day, many tribes, like the Navajo Nation, like our nation, Marley and I's um, nation, we don't have water rights to the Colorado River or the Little Colorado River, the tributary that runs right through our reservation, whereas colonial communities, settler communities do, and they're increasing their water rights. And with climate change, and uh, and increase water use. That we even have a less of a pool to draw upon, less less water reserves to um, to be claiming. And um, and so that's you know that's a whole water regime that was colonial nature made in the appropriation of resources for settler communities, uh, discounting and omitting tribal water interests, and then at this point a hundred years after the fact, are we folded into that system with uh, in the most precarious circumstance in the most precarious um, position without any water infrastructure and also without the political representation that the states have. You know, we have to rely on the states to bring this to Congress to make this into into law. And then the states are adversarial to tribal water interests. They want more water for the state. So we have to make all sorts of compromises along the way. And so that happens in 2012. That happens in 2022. That's how colonialism continues to replicate itself over time.
0: So water regimes are a really good example of one way that colonialism kind of affects environment. Can you talk more broadly, how uh, do you see the dynamics of colonialism playing out in environmental issues today?
1: Colonialism is 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 cunning is it's complicated it really um it is really it's even hard to detect when it's happening to the people it's happening to on occasion uh like with these water settlements like these water agreements so Anyway, so that's you know I think that's what's important to recognize, with uh, with how we think about structure, and and uh, structure and that colonialism is a structure, not an event. I would say that it is both; it is a structure and an event, and the events continue to structure that colonial relationship over time and shift it in ways that are more advantageous to the settler against the settled.
2: Yeah, I, I think this. This particular historical project, colonialism, just like capitalism, is very uneven. Certain locations experience it or feel it more. Like it's, it's a lot of these institutions really um, are colonial nature, but have actually helped in reproducing it by, uh, by subjecting, uh, I guess, colonizers, settlers, indigenous people to certain types of rules and priorities uh, in in their positions, you know and for me a lot of these institutional these institutions uh could also structure like jurisdiction and authority and they operate on certain rationales and and you know when i'm thinking about grazing regimes for sure just the way that on a very epistemological level even like how science is being conducted about how people survey soil like it's the the way that they have binaries between humans and nature or there's a separation also assumptions of mastering nature that had that were very detrimental to indigenous uh, I'm sorry to Navajo people in the 30s and 40s I'm starting to see that there are certain assumptions and rationalities that help reproduce kind of a colonial present like through the idea of development for the sake of profit I'm Starting to work through is just like historic historicizing like economic development in uh tribal communities and, and really actually trying to understand what types of assumptions are there and where contemporary economic development practices and assumptions stem from, kind of trying to connect them into my own community's local development and understanding how certain NGOs or even the tribal government is playing by or kind of having to play by the rules of capitalist or in market imperatives, like Andrew pointed out, you know, there's a lot of institutional and rules that you kind of have to follow by. And as much as my community, you know, has goals that they want to meet, they have to kind of play by these rules and and in, in some ways are actors who reproduce colonialism and capitalism themselves.
0: So TLDR, colonialism, is not an event that happened 200, 400 years ago. It continues to be an insidious part of American society, and it structures how we use natural resources and regulate the environment. One project that environmentalists work on a lot is trying to imagine alternatives to the idea of endlessly developing resources, or at least critiquing that idea. And it's definitely interesting to think about other ways of imagining development that might be indigenous-centered, or you know, as contrasted to quote-unquote sustainable development, or as some scholars have suggested, kind of totally moving away from a model of future linear progress and development. That's kind of something Gramsci famously wrote about. But as you guys are talking about environmentally damaging projects like dams, operate on the assumption of a blank quote-unquote developing land to farm it assumes that indigenous peoples living there didn't already have practices of cultivation and caring for the land. And this blank is really fundamental to our European-derived concept of private property, where the scholar John Locke wrote about the empty waste of North America, specifically in his famous work developing the idea of private property. So what do you think about this blank slate? What is it that's being lost maybe when we think about the undeveloped world as a quote unquote blank slate? And, you know, like, is that an appropriate framework through which to look at environmental issues?
1: You're right on hitting the nail on the head. (laughs) You know, referring back to to how Locke and others have used Locke, I think they refer to it as a labor theory of value to think about like, oh, you know, unless you're putting a certain kind of... um, effort into the land to improve the land to improve it for certain kinds of productive activities you know it's not it doesn't have the same kind of it doesn't have valuation part of this justification of land dispossession is that you have to change the land you have to improve it in this you know in this idealistic sense you know we need to drain swamps right that whole phrasing that Trump used drain the swamp right that's a very colonial uh, metaphor right that's a colonial idea you know the swamp itself is full of life and it's it's an ecosystem and you are to drain it is to Kill that. And so, you know, the whole, like you're saying, the whole conceptualization of space, terra nullius, the idea that there's no people here, or, you know, doctrine of discovery, they're not Christian, you know, so therefore we have the colonial right. Uh, to take over this land, or um, they're not using this water, you know, so we have the right to divert it because otherwise it 's wasted water if it it gets into the ocean if it it runs out into the sea that that always leads us to this uncomfortable position, I think. Where we have to prove like something, in that absence, right? We have to prove something against that absence. Like, oh well, what are your land regimes? If you if you you know what I mean, like. And it's it's you know you have to really get out of this whole idea, of governing the environment. In some ways, to appreciate how we have lived in in the places that we've lived and how we've used um, the land and resources, and not even to think about things as resources, right? To even challenge that idea. And to say, hey, you know, um, it's not that it's not that we were unproductive, it's it's not that we didn't have senses of place or territory. Um, it's that we were doing things that weren't putting that land into the abstract category of private property. Like, we are very literal on place. And it's these theorizations, in fact, that make it abstract and make the possibility for the possession possible. So if you're like, oh, you know, we're putting this imaginary line between this space and we're going to say on this side is one place and on this side is another, that itself is is a is a colonial imaginary that doesn't follow the way we've been reading the land. You know, we say, "Hey, here's where water is located. Here's where you can graze sheep. Here's where um, other people are found and located, and where they're planting their fields." That's how we were historically, and to this day, thinking about space. Right? We're like, "Oh, things are over there." We're very descriptive about the landscape. You know, we've put a lot of detail. That's fact-based understanding of the land, you know, to say that there's rock formations here. The rocks look like this. The water is located like this. The water has this kind of glean to it at this certain time. You know, that's the kind of descriptions you get for Navajo place-based names in the reservation. And, um, you know, that's not putting a land regime on top of it. That's not putting, like, theories of carrying capacity, theories of, like, private property, theories of value of land and 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 um and what you can do you know with that land like oh i'm going to take this land and mortgage it and buy something with that to turn land into a commodity that's interchangeable with other commodities. That's a basic Marxian critique, right, about how commodities become part of the capitalist world order. And so like that, you know, that's not how we were thinking about these spaces. And, you know, we will give you that if you spend two weeks, you know, <laughs> we living on the reservation and then we'll give you a counter idea of the world.
0: So in the in your work in what you look at in this kind of waters, river damming, can you give us an example of indigenous practices versus capitalist colonial practices?
1: You know with the water right the water you know we respected the perennial water sources and um and there was limited forms of damming and diversions you know the Hohokam people did that you know we know that's true we we see evidence of of that kind of uh living uh in in um you know where i'm at currently in tucson and in um in the salt river valley in phoenix but, you know, it was done in a way that wasn't destroying those perennial water sources. Like, you know, all the Hohokam dams, or not dams, diversions, you know, the flooding and diverting of waters from the Salt River into various fields, didn't do what the Roosevelt did, dam did, you know, the early 20th century, just completely stopping water from going into the, the river and the valley. And, and creating a whole different kind of environment around it. And that, that I think, is the fundamental difference. And who has the longer history in the region and who has the more sustainable history? Definitely not Phoenix. Phoenix is already running out of water and it's only been around for like a little more than 100 years. So by comparison, you know, it's failing uh, when you're thinking about the Hohokam civilization.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think for me, you know, these regimes that are, uh, currently in contra that counter traditional ways are like life ways and practices, um, are definitely influenced and have certain types of tenets that are involved, like improvement, efficiency, um, productivity that are, are very bounded and, and bundled with like the rise of capitalism. And, you know, and, and part of that is like primitive accumulation is, it, as a historical project it really tries to or it ha, it has repressed or dismissed social relations and practices um to kind of narrow it down to certain to like a very uh binary like separation between uh people or people and and nature and you know it, it's it's something that we kind of have to deal with uh in these more contemporary regimes and understanding the assumptions that um shape shape them and, and, and like Andrew, yeah, it's, it's tricky because then, like, you know, I, I think whenever I get I, it's something that I've, I'm starting to really think about, too, is the reaction to, well, if these are colonial, what's non-colonial? And the tricky part is navigating that and not falling into like a an authentic kind of a sense of authenticity, of like essentialism of indigenous people. You're like, oh, Navajo people, we were always sheep herders, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, but actually thinking about the complexities of life there. And and you know, it's when you asked that question, I was gonna make a joke because colonialism is so good I, I don't even know what our traditional ways of life were. <laughs> but that's not true because you know, I I learn bits and uh pieces of it. Oh, that sounds even worse. Like it's all tattered. I learn about it through like, you know, my grandmother's historical memory, you know, oral stories, etc.
0: So one idea that's gaining more and more currency in environmental circles um, is the idea of trying to promote indigenous aspirations towards sovereignty, a word that's been really, really key in indigenous movements for a long time now, movement towards sovereignty. Um, And I'd like to ask, when you think about sovereignty, what does that mean to you? How do you conceive of that?
1: It's a good question. It's a good question, and academics are bad at giving really simple answers. Um, <laughs> I think that there are multiple ways that people have addressed it. There's multiple facets to it. There's the political and legal, and that's the traditional literature. You know, that's where like this nation-building literature exists. That's where like you know the indigenous self-determination movement comes out of. Other people have put forward ideas like cultural sovereignty, like really giving. Providing the conditions where our um, unique ideas, our unique philosophies, or are are, you, are countering ideas about the the land on which we live and how we we live on it where we can exercise those you know and it's hard to do that in like a little reservation space while like arizona or the rest of the united states is polluting or doing other things right how can you have cultural sovereignty in a fallout zone you know if they're doing like nuclear testing in nevada you can't be like well we don't believe in that and we're just going to like continue to do our practices here without being impacted by that now there's been more um questions about sovereignty as kind of a ruse um as if it's like the, you know there's this whole idea of the politics of recognition like oh as soon as you recognize you're being complicit within the colonial regime you're agreeing to certain parts of colonialism uh either inadvertently or like consciously um so there's that whole idea and then there's also like um what is the difference between sovereignty and jurisdiction and that's uh Sherry Pasternak um non-native scholar who were, who's who's re- Uh, Grounded Authority is really, really good at thinking about these questions and um, and, you know, thinking, oh, jurisdiction is kind of like our original environmental governance, like how we uh, lived on the land and claim kind of a relationship to that land. And then some people think about it like in this idea of kinship, renewing kinship responsibilities with the non-human world, you know, uh, with uh, with non-human persons uh, other kinds of what we would call animals otherwise, or uh, land and water, other kinds of non-human elements that are re- that are necessary for life. So all of those things are kind of within this mixture of idea of sovereignty. Um, for me, I feel like it's all of it. You know, I think there's some some, you know, it's all of it and we still haven't reached everything that we can think about with sovereignty. That's where, you know, people in um, in in political science, in political philosophy, in um, in even the social sciences, can start to think creatively about that. You know, we don't want to limit ourselves to to things that exist now. You know, that's a whole idea of having conversation and, and trying to expand our thinking about things. Yeah, at the end of the day, I, I think more more political rights for tribes that are on, you know, that you don't you can't negate through the colonial system, either by saying, hey, you know, uh, the state decides to do this, so you got to do this, or, you know, we're going to deny funding to you if you do, if you, if you like redo your whole land regime, um, will the federal government stop you from doing that? You know, that's a political right that all tribes will think that you will defend and say, we have the right to do this. And we all believe that sincerely. And uh, and that's not afforded to us currently. So I think that's an easy area to think about where sovereignty is and where it exists. So I'll stop there.
2: I, I agree. I think I, I'm just really interested uh, in less of like, like ideal uh, conceptions of sovereignty and more of like taking into consideration the material conditions that uh, indigenous people have to navigate. So and part of that really requires understanding indigenous people on their own terms, but also within the uh, colonial present that they have to operate in, so.
0: All right, and if you're interested in learning more about these issues, Professor Curley and Marley grapple with questions about climate change and sovereignty and environmental utopias and dystopias in a more intense and analytical way in their chapter from the book, Changing Geographies of the State. Marley, Professor Curley, thank you so much for being here today. It was really a pleasure to talk, and I think a bit of a change of pace for the podcast.
2: Thanks, Thanks again for inviting us. Yeah, thank you for having us. All
1: right, well, have a good day. Enjoy the cold weather in Massachusetts.
0: You just heard season two, episode two of Climate Futures, a podcast that talks to Harvard professors, experts, and activists about possible solutions to climate change. This season, we're covering issues Kim Stanley Robinson doesn't talk about in his novel. We'll also be talking about energy systems and the energy transition. We're going to be talking about health and climate. We're going to talk about a political theory of international governance. It's a super exciting season for me. I'm Annalisa Kingsbury-Lee, your host, and this has been Climate Futures.